Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly on leadership series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your weekly host and interviewer. Wow, we've had a fantastic run of our first 140 plus interviews. We are delighted, honored, humbled at how many of you continue to email us every week, rank them, rate them in whatever format you're consuming them. This podcast is now the world's largest subscribed to and distributed leadership podcast globally. Many of you listen to it in your car, on your drives, on your commute. You're listening to it perhaps on a variety of different podcast channels. And a lot of you are subscribing to it by doing so via our website, franklincovey.com, and you're consuming it on video as well. Whichever way you're doing that, we're honored that you're part of the On Leadership community. And today we have a phenomenal interview with literally a rocket scientist. Today our guest is Ozan Veral. He wrote the book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life. Ozan, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm delighted to be here. Well, the book is a masterpiece, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. We don't like for our podcast to be a book review, but we find that some of the most interesting insights on leadership, innovation, culture, executing strategy come from authors, scientists, teachers like yourself. So we'll talk a bit about your book in a minute, but would you maybe take our listeners, including me, on a bit of a journey on your career? Literally, you are a rocket scientist. You're also an author, podcaster, speaker, teacher, lecturer. Talk a bit about your career so all of our listeners and viewers can get a good sense for how you became a rocket scientist and wrote a book about how to think like one. Sure, yeah. I've definitely had a uh, multi-hyphenated career and multi-hyphenated life in more ways than one. So I grew up in Istanbul, Turkey, learned English as a second language, grew up in a family of knowing the speakers. I ended up applying to colleges in the United States. My moonshot was to become an astronaut someday. I got into Cornell University, studied astrophysics there, and then I ended up working on the operations team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers Project, which sent two rovers, their names were Spirit, Spirit and Opportunity to Mars in 2003. Uh, we built the rovers to last for 90 days, and I still get goosebumps every time I say this, but one of the rovers, Opportunity, ended up roving on the red planet for over 15 years into its 90-day mission. Um, I did that for a little while, and then I did a pretty major career pivot, ended up going to law school. I became a practicing attorney, pivoted again, uh, went into academia, became a tenured full law professor. And then a few years ago, I got a little tired of only speaking to academic audiences. And so I started my own online platform, started blogging, started doing keynote speaking for businesses, started a podcast, um, and then ended up writing a book that came out earlier this year called Think Like a Rocket Scientist. And the impetus for the book basically was, after I left rocket science, I took all of these principles and strategies that I'd learned um, on my time with the Mars mission and started applying them in different industries, including law, including business, including academia, and noticed how useful those principles are in all of these diverse fields. But the problem is, you know, we put rocket scientists into their own corner and say like, oh, that's rocket science, I can't figure that out. Um, and so I wanted to write a book, not about the science behind rocket science, but really strategies that rocket scientists use on a daily basis that any one of us can, can adapt in our own lives to be able to make giant leaps. 
Ozan, I feel pretty insignificant after listening to you humbly go through your journey. More importantly, I have watched every episode of Big Bang Theory. Never missed one of them. But it was my companion as I was keynoting uh, across the nation on a book that I wrote. I watched it on all my flights. And I'm not quite sure I know what astrophysics is still. I'm not sure where Sheldon would rank that in the whole level of being a physicist, but reorient our guest and myself to what does it mean to study and be an astrophysicist? What does that mean? Sure. So astrophysics is, is basically a science. And the classes I took in college were primarily astronomy classes and theoretical physics classes, like quantum mechanics, for example, was one of them. Um, I also did study a little bit of geology as well because I was interested in planetary sciences and how evolution happens on a planetary level. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a mix of astronomy, physics, and, and, and geology for me. Um, you know, and, and interestingly enough, you know, the, I like that you asked that question because actually the classes I was taking was one of the reasons why I pivoted away from astrophysics and ended up going to law school. Uh, so I loved working on the Mars mission. I've always been more interested in practical applications, basically, and the Mars mission was as practical as things got, but I didn't love the, the theoretical classes I was taking. Um, and so, and I, I would have had to go get a PhD if I wanted to do anything with astrophysics. And uh, so I ended up pivoting away from astrophysics and, and going to law, which was far more practical for me. But after I left, I picked up all of these principles that you know I learned in rocket science and started applying them to very different fields. I'm quite certain you are the first person in history to have pivoted away from rocket science into law. Usually it's the opposite. Usually people are tired of billing by the minute, you know, and they want to leave law. But we'll leave that to a different interview. Before I talk about how to be a rocket scientist, I want you to teach me something. I, although I live now in Utah, and it's where Franklin Covey's headquarters is, I was born and raised in Central Florida, in Orlando, near the Kennedy Space Center, Cape Canaveral. So, of course, I grew up with space shuttles and all the rockets and such and was quite fascinated but you open the book talking a lot about President Kennedy's you know, bold aspiration and vision, and it's a theme, honestly, throughout your book. We'll talk about that in a moment. But one of the insights that you share that I still don't quite understand is when a space shuttle or a rocket is re-entering Earth's atmosphere, it has to enter at like a certain angle. I think the metaphor you used was like you know, a coin. It has to hit one of those ridges, right? Mm -hmm. It's a precise science. Can you just educate me and for those who aren't astrophysicists or rocket scientists, when a rocket is re-entering Earth's atmosphere, why is that angle and timing so important? Just give me a primer on that. Sure, yeah, I think, so basically one of three things can happen when a spacecraft is entering, not just Earth's atmosphere, but any atmosphere. If the, uh, if the angle is too shallow, basically, then there's a danger then the, that the space shuttle or the spacecraft can burn up in the atmosphere because of, of intense friction uh, with, this, with the, with the atmos atmosphere, with the molecules in the atmosphere. If it's too shallow, then there's a danger that the spacecraft or the space shuttle can basically like skid across the atmosphere like a rock skipping on water. Uh, and so the angle of, of re-entry has to be timed just right so that neither of those disaster scenarios ends up happening. And, and we lost so many space, well, not necessarily so many spacecraft. We lost one particular spacecraft that I remember distinctly because I was working on the Mars Exploration Rovers when that happened. It's called the Mars Climate Orbiter. It basically came in at an angle that it shouldn't have. 
And it ended up either burning up in the Martian atmosphere or skidding across the, the atmosphere and just going into outer space. We don't actually know what happened to it, but that was precisely because we didn't get the angle right. Ozan, pardon my ignorance and apologies to our audience, but I spent my entire year in business and leadership development, right? Very few science classes since sure. early college. H how do you know that? Like, how do you determine the angle? And is it through trial and error? How does a rocket scientist discover what the right angle is? Well, I think it's, it's through calculation, basically. So you, you sit down and figure out exactly what the angle needs to be. You can calculate the amount of friction that might occur at a certain angle. You can calculate, I mean, exactly what's going to happen, basically, um, if the, the angle is not, is not hit correctly. Um, so it's, it's done through calculation primarily. Um, and, you know, and so data also becomes really important, though, because if you don't have data as to what's happening to a spacecraft as it's re-entering an atmosphere, for example, then you're not going to be able to engage in that trial and error process and be able to collect data to be able to iterate and, and improve over time. Uh, so I mentioned the Mars Climate Orbiter, for example. I mean, one of the, it's one of the most embarrassing disasters in, in NASA's history. I talk about it in the book, but basically what happened was NASA got the units of measurements wrong. Uh, there were two centers working on the spacecraft, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and then Lockheed Martin that had actually built the spacecraft. And the two of them, one of them was using the, the metric system, the other one was using the, uh, the inch pound system. And they hadn't included units of measurement, and so they were talking in two different languages, but neither of them knew that, that what, the, what the language that the other side was using, basically. And so the Mars Climate Orbiter ended up probably burning up in the, in the Martian atmosphere. Uh, that's an example of like rocket scientists failing to think like a rocket scientist. Uh, so you're saying some of my own business debacles aren't quite as bad as not getting yeah, exactly. whether we're on inches or the metric system. I also hear a collective sigh of relief around the world that Scott Miller's moonshot was not to become a rocket scientist because I would have failed. So speaking of moonshots, that's a big idea in the book, right? Is this concept of, you know, organizationally in business and in life, what is a moonshot? Can you kind of deconstruct that concept and why that's so relevant for leaders to understand what their moonshot is inside of companies. Sure, so as you said, Scott, I opened the book by describing our first literal moonshot. So President John F. Kennedy stepping up to the podium at Rice University Stadium in September 1962 and pledging to land a man on the moon. Now at the time, you know, in, in hindsight, of course, that pledge became reality. But at the time, that pledge to many people was crazy. A lot of the, the officials at NASA thought that Kennedy was promising the impossible because so much of what would be required for a moon landing just hadn't been done yet. You know, no American astronaut, when Kennedy made that pledge, no American astronaut had worked outside of a spacecraft. Two spacecraft had never docked together in, in orbit. NASA didn't know if the lunar surface was solid enough to support a lander, whether, whether the communication system would work on the moon. Kennedy said some of the metals required to build the rockets hadn't been invented. So we jumped into the cosmic void and hoped that we'd grow wings on the way up. And just set, less than seven years after Kennedy's pledge, Neil Armstrong took his giant leap for mankind. Uh, and just to set that accomplishment in context, you know, a child who was 
six years old when the Wright brothers took their first flight, which lasted like 10 seconds and moved about 100 feet, would have been 72 when flight became powerful enough to put a man on the moon. I mean, that is a staggering, dizzying speed, right? From Wright brothers to Neil Armstrong in 66 years. And that, that I think that giant leap is often celebrated as a triumph of technology, but it wasn't. It was the triumph of a, of a certain thought process that rocket scientists used to turn the seemingly impossible into the possible. And so that's what I refer to as, as moonshot thinking in the book. Now, moonshot thinking, and this is really important, isn't just dreaming big and you know, sort of just hoping that your dreams magically become reality. It's really the, the intersection of, of idealism and pragmatism of combining extraordinary thinking with really an actionable roadmap framework for achieving those extraordinary results. Um, and so if you look at our first actual moonshot, you know, Kennedy had this really audacious goal, but NASA went about accomplishing that goal in a very practical way. You know, they worked backward from, we, we normally, when we're planning in our lives, we tend to do forecasting, right? So we, we start with the status quo. We look at our current budget, current skill set, current customer base, and extrapolate that into the future. Now, the problem with forecasting is that it, it starts with the status quo, and often the status quo is a part of the problem, and that it takes all of those problematic assumptions and just projects them into the future. What NASA did with our first shot, first moonshot, was the opposite of that, uh, what I call backcasting in the book. So they began not with the status quo, but with Neil Armstrong on the lunar surface and worked backward from that to determine exactly what would be required in a step-by-step -step fashion to make that big dream a reality. And only after each successive step was completed, you know, for example, having an astronaut work outside of a spacecraft, have two spacecraft work to get, uh, dock together in Earth orbit first, and then send a spacecraft to the moon to just circle around it and come back. And after each of those successive steps were completed, was a lunar landing actually attempted. So moonshot thinking is really that, that marriage, that sweet spot between idealism and pragmatism. And I think it's so important in, in today's day and age because we are a species of moonshots, even though we've largely forgotten it. I think we've been seduced by society, by our education system that you know, flying lower is, is safer than flying higher, that coasting is better than soaring, that small dreams are, are wiser than moonshots. But as any pilot will tell you, altitude is your friend. If your you know, plane quits when you're, or your engine quits when you're flying high, you have possibilities for gliding your plane to safety. But the, the, the possibilities in flight, just like the possibilities in life, tend to be more limited when your plane is, is flying at lower altitudes. Ozan, I could listen to you for hours. Your experience is incalculable. Uh, you also write in the book that moonshots are talent magnets. And that really got me thinking about Franklin Covey. Our CEO, Bob Whitman, has led a complete transformation of the Franklin Covey company in the last five years. For 35 years, we were a fairly traditional, well-respected training consulting company. And Bob has led this massive transition to a technology company, moving to a SaaS model. We're now the world's largest subscription-based enterprise consulting company in the world. And that was a moonshot. And mm -hmm. it's become a talent magnet because not to diminish any of our competitors, our, our industry tends to be very collegial. 
Um, but people are, are, are thriving and driving towards this because they want to work at Franklin Covey because of our moonshot. Talk about how moonshots are talent magnets. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that point, Scott, because it's, it's so true. So research shows that businesses that take moonshots, that adopt this moonshot thinking mindset, tend to perform better. Uh, and, and partially it's because moonshots tend to be, as you said, talent magnets. Um, and so the example I give in the book is from SpaceX, which is Elon Musk's company. Uh, they made headlines earlier this year when they became the first private company right. to put humans into, into orbit. Uh, and just to set that accomplishment in context, only three major governments have been able to do that before. US, Russia, and China. And SpaceX, this relatively young company, beats everybody else, including traditional aerospace companies, including major governments around the world, to the finish line. What was their secret? Well, one of their secrets was that they've been able to cherry pick the best rocket scientists from traditional aerospace companies and make them work around the clock on these audacious projects. And they, to bring them on board to SpaceX, they have a very simple promise. They'll say to them, look, you don't have to sit in endless meetings. You don't have to deal with bureaucratic red tape. You don't have to fend off you know, internal political attacks in this massive bureaucracy that you're in. If you come to SpaceX, you will get to do what you were trained to do, which is to build rockets. And those rockets, one day, are going to take people to Mars. Now that is an offer that most rocket scientists can't refuse. Ozan, further you write that uh, too often leaders let their you know, current reality define what their future is going to look like, right? It sounds like a cliche, but we all see that. What, what insight as a professor, as, a, as an author and a rocket scientist would you offer to every leader in any level of organization, entrepreneur, solopreneur, intrapreneur, someone leading a frontline business team, what, what can we do as we think like a rocket scientist to move, be aware that our perhaps existing reality may be limiting our future? Yeah, for sure. I think there are so many examples across so many different fields of the status quo getting in the way of change. Uh, now, humans are, are built to favor the status quo, basically, because whenever we, you know, our ancestors thousands of years ago, venturing into the unknown was scary because it meant getting killed potentially. And so we are genetically wired to, to fear the unknown and stick with what we know. But the problem is in this modern day and age, status quo, sticking with the status quo can be quite risky. Uh, when companies are determining what to do next, they often don't consider, for example, the costs of doing nothing, the costs of, of doing what we did yesterday, the costs of, and I see so many businesses do this, you know, this is where lightning struck last. So let's just set up a lightning rod there in that very same spot and expect lightning to strike again. You know, this worked before, so let's do it again and again and again. Let's launch the, you know, the same marketing campaign. Let's write another mass market paperback book about teenage vampires. Let's make the 17th sequel to, to Fast and Furious. Now that strategy can work in the short term, but over term, over time, it's a it's a recipe for disaster uh, because um, imitation 
tends to make the trend obsolete. And there are so many examples of this from the business world. The Kodak is a, is a prime example that's cited in so many business books, of course. Yeah. The top management at Kodak had the, they had the patents to digital cameras, but the management believed that digital film would never replace physical film. Uh, Garmin is another example of this. You know, we, so many of us own those Garmin, the, the, the dash-mounted GPS units, but Garmin ignored the smartphone revolution and just kept doing what they were doing yesterday. And you can add Blockbuster, Borders, BlackBerry to some extent to that, to that list as well. In each case, the, the, the unsinkable sinks, the invincible self-destructs because we assume that their previous success guarantees their future. And then they're just left standing when a, a young and scrappy competitor who's willing to rethink, reimagine outdated approaches speeds past them to the finish line. Uh, so I encourage leaders to ask themselves this question of, you know, what is the cost of doing nothing? What is the cost of sticking with the status quo? And often you realize that the cost of, of sticking with the status quo is far higher than, than taking a, um, a path into into the unknown. Ozan, I think the reason your book is so good and your influence is so recognized now is although you think like a rocket scientist, you don't speak like a rocket scientist. And a lot of your examples in the book are very relatable. Let's talk about the one with the bees and the flies. And you use that to teach this concept of convergent versus divergent thinking and the pros and cons. Will you riff on that? Tell the story about the bees and the flies and talk about the ups and the downs of convergent versus divergent thinking. Let's imagine you have a, a glass bottle uh, and point the base of that bottle towards a light source. Now, if you put bees into that bottle, uh, bees will try to get out from where the light source is, from the bottom of the glass, and they will keep hitting the, the bottom over and over and over again until they sadly die. If you put flies into the same bottle though, bottle though, flies will just fly here and there, here and thither, and then eventually they'll find the exit because they are not so focused on trying to get out the only way they know, which is through this light source at the bottom of the, of the glass bottle. And so the flies and, and the bees in turn represents um, divergent and convergent thinking. Um, so divergent thinking is a way of adopting that fly mindset of not being focused on a single answer, but really allowing your imagination to run wildly. Um, and so, so much of the time, we don't begin with divergent thinking. We begin with our budget. We begin with our constraints. We begin with what we can't do. And if you've been in any meeting at a big company, you know how this works. People are gathered around the conference table to brainstorm ideas, but instead of generating new ideas, people are too busy shutting them down. So that's an example of, of, of a business not using divergent thinking. So the goal here, and, and research bears this out, is to begin with that fly mindset, and at the initial stages of idea formation, just let your imagination run wild. Uh, come up with different possibilities. Don't think about budgets and you know, and, um, and, and skills at the, at the very beginning of the process or constraints. Just, just let your brain run wild because if you, if you put, so convergent thinking is basically bringing constraints into the mix. And if you begin with convergent thinking, it's sort of like uh, putting the cart before the horse. You end up artificially limiting possibilities. 
after you've engaged in a divergent thinking exercise and, and just let your brain run wild, then you can adopt convergent thinking and actually begin bringing in constraints into the process to see what you might be able to work. And the reason why you need to begin, or it's a good idea to begin with divergent thinking is because what's seemingly at first seems like a wild idea, a crazy idea, maybe even a bad idea, is often just the close cousin of a good one. And if you initially artificially restrict what's possible, then you're going to be cutting off those, those ideas, those seemingly bad ideas that are going to give way to, to amazing breakthroughs that will allow you to, to redefine the future of your, of your business, if not your entire industry. Ozan, take that concept one step further, because as you talk about divergent thinking, I think a lot of us can think of becoming the contrarian. You talk about being a right. contrarian. And we've all met that person who's the constant contrarian, right? right? Who in every situation is constantly the, we, heard, we hear it called the devil's advocate or the contrarian. There's certainly a downside to that because that can fatigue people and wear in the culture and impact relationships. From your experience as an author and a professor and as a, as a colleague, when does someone know when their divergent thinking is becoming their brand as the contrarian and it may actually negatively impact their reputation or the adoption of their own ideas? Yeah, for sure. I think the, 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 the contrarian mindset you just described, which is the, you know, the person, and we've all met this person, who says no to everything, who says we can't do it because, that can't be done because, that usually comes in in the convergent thinking phase. Um, that's the sort of the mindset of a, of a, I think a narrow-minded convergent thinker. Um, and to me, a contrarian, or at least a positive contrarian, does not do that. Um, the goal of a positive contrarian should be to look at the status quo and ask why. And is there a better way? Not to just shoot down ideas for the sake of shooting them down, because anybody can do that. I think that's really easy to say, we can't do it because of this, or that can't be done because of that. What's really hard is to say, here's a status quo. Let me find, is there a better way forward? Like, is there a good reason for that status quo to be in place? And so instead of adopting a, this can't be done mindset, adopting a, this can be done if, we can do this if. I think that becomes a, a lot more useful, positive way of channeling those contrarian tendencies into actually more positive feedback and to be able to create something useful instead of just shooting down one idea after the other. Ozan, many of our listeners and clients and viewers work in cultures, whether they're corporate cultures or educational organizations or not-for-profits or in the government, where it's not safe to change your mind, where mm. your brand where your authority, where your position is that, you know, perhaps you have some omniscience or you're the genius in the room and you have to even sometimes double down on your idea because it's not comfortable, it's not safe to admit that you've changed your idea. Or perhaps if you do change your idea, you're seen as not being convicted or confident in your original strategy. You talk about the value of flip-flopping, of being able to change your mind. What would you, how would you address that with our listeners on the power and the vulnerability of flip-flopping and being willing to change your mind? Yeah, I think it's, it's such an important question and, and one that's uh, top of mind these days. Uh, so you're absolutely right. I think 
We are in many ways programmed to seek out information that confirms what we think we know. So what we believe already, we seek out information to confirm that belief, as opposed to doing what scientists do, which is the opposite of that. So science, the scientific method is, is based on falsification. You come up with a hypothesis to describe a, a particular phenomenon, and your goal is to disprove that hypothesis, to, to falsify that hypothesis, to, to prove yourself wrong. Um, and that, I think, runs counter to the way that a lot of us operate. But then I think it's useful to step back and ask, what is the purpose of, say, having a discussion? Or what is the purpose of having a meeting to test the ideas that we're throwing around in a business? If your goal is to feel good, if your goal is to be validated, if your goal is to, to be right all the time, then sure, I think you, know, you won't listen to conflicting information. You won't be open to changing your mind. But think about what you're doing in the process. I think a business who is built with that mindset is walking towards catastrophe uh, because you're ignoring conflicting information that your customers or your market might be sending you and you're sticking to what you think you know is best for your company. Um, and that's a really dangerous mindset to be in. But if your goal is to find what's right, instead of just to be right, if your goal isn't just to feel good, but to actually uncover information, really valuable information, regardless of whether that contradicts your current worldview, then I think you're gonna be a much better leader in the process because your employees are now gonna know that you're willing to listen to them, uh, that you're willing to listen to their point of view and, and remain open to changing your mind. When you do that, by the way, that ends up creating an environment of psychological safety within your company as well. When as a leader, you are willing to listen to when your employees raise their hands and say, hey, you know what? We don't think this is a, this is a good idea. Uh, this happened with NASA in the case of the Challenger disaster in 1986. Engineers raised their hands and said, we shouldn't launch. The temperatures at Cape Canaveral are really cold right now. And these O-rings that are central to the functioning of the spacecraft don't work well in cold temperatures. But the management was not, a, was not applying this mindset that I just talked about, uh, trying to prove themselves wrong. Instead, they stuck to what they think they knew. They ignored conflicting information that came in from the engineers. And in a, one of the greatest tragedies in, in space history ensued as a result. So I think it's useful to look at it from that lens. Is your goal to feel good? If that's your goal, then, then keep validating yourself. But if your goal is to make sure your business survives, that your, your spacecraft doesn't crash, then I think it makes much more sense to, to switch your perspective, to adopt a little bit of flip-flopping, to switch your perspective from trying to prove yourself right all the time to trying to prove yourself wrong. Ozan, this may seem like a small question, but I mean for it to be a big question. What does it mean to think like a rocket scientist? I think it goes back to the idea of moonshot thinking. I think that really that, that concept captures what it means to, to think like a rocket scientist, to look at the seemingly impossible and turn it into the possible, to look at the seemingly unsolvable and turn it into the solvable. And another thing that I think rocket scientists really excel at is being able to, to make really complicated decisions in uncertain conditions. You know, there are so many things that can happen 
when you when you go to fire a rocket and only one of them is good. Uh, and there's so much uncertainty involved every single time there's a rocket launch. It's true from the perspective of the astronauts sitting on top of this, you know, this rocket with the power of a small nuclear bomb as well. Uh, there's so much uncertainty involved in their day-to-day -day lives. So I think rocket scientists, part of thinking like a rocket scientist is being able to turn what we normally see as an enemy, which is uncertainty into a friend. So realizing, coming up with ways to, to cope with uncertainty, to make it your friend. And I give a number of strategies in the book, but I think one that's particularly useful from a rocket science lens is to gather information. Information and knowledge is a great way of, of reducing uncertainty. And the way that rocket scientists do this is through a principle called test as you fly. And it's a really simple principle um, that's applicable far outside of rocket science. But basically, the idea is when you conduct an experiment, you want that experiment to closely resemble the flight, uh, if possible, be identical to the flight as much as possible. Uh, and then you fly just in the same conditions that you tested. And the goal here in a test is to really mimic the conditions of flight because, you know, to, to be able to, for example, subject the, the components of a spacecraft to the same vibrations that, that they're going to experience in flight, just so the test is realistic, just so the test gives you data that you can, that you can use when you're actually flying. Uh, this is why astronauts, you know, when they're training for, for space missions, one of the goals of their supervisors is to just throw every imaginable failure scenario at them. Um, and having practiced thousands of failure scenarios in conditions that are very similar to the flight, when failure happens in space, when mistakes happen in space, it becomes second nature for the astronaut to be able to just step in and deal with that problem in a more cool-headed, objective way. Now, what does that mean for if you're a business leader? Most businesses, in my experience, don't conduct tests. So they move from idea to idea to execution. And, and I think because of that, end up losing, in some cases at least, a lot of money uh, and spend a lot of resources on something that doesn't end up working. But even when they do conduct tests, they do so in conditions that don't resemble reality. Uh, so we put people in, in focus groups or we give them surveys and we end up asking them questions that they would never get in, in real life. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is the iPhone. When they ran a, a survey asking Americans whether they would prefer, this is before the iPhone came out, whether they would prefer one device to use as a phone, uh, a computer, and a music player, only 30% of people said yes. So 70% seemed to prefer having a different device for each of those three functions. But the problem with that survey was that it was too abstract. When people were actually handed an iPhone, when they felt this revolutionary device in their hands, they couldn't let it go. Um, and so following the results of the survey would have been disastrous for Apple, of course, and it would have been a violation of this test as you fly principle. As a company, you're far better off, instead of asking people abstract questions, actually giving them a real prototype of your product and watching how they interact with it, watching their reactions and observing what they're doing as opposed to conducting tests in, in conditions that don't mimic reality, not testing as you fly. Ozan, so, so well said. Thank you for that, genuinely. Our, our time is coming to an end, but I wanna 
have you address one last sort of metaphor you share in the book, because I think it's so instructive to um, founders, owners, entrepreneurs. I use the term intrapreneurs, people inside of organizations that have a entrepreneurial responsibility or proclivity. You shared this idea of the lion, and the lion can chase the mm -hmm. antelope, the lion can chase the mouse. Of course, the um, calories expended, you know, catching a mouse are more than the calories consumed. How do you see that, that story, that circle of life metaphor applying to a lot of business leaders, and how do they pick which antelope to chase when it's maybe easier to chase the mouse, maybe recreate right. that story. And what's the insight there for leaders? Sure. And the story, the origin of the story is a book by James Carville. Uh, but I, I use it in the book as a metaphor to illustrate moonshot thinking, basically. So a lion is perfectly capable of capturing and eating mice. But it turns out that the calories required for a lion to actually chase after a mice and to capture it exceed the calorie content of the mouse itself. Uh, now, a lion also has the option of going after an antelope. Antelopes are much bigger animals. They're much faster. They are harder to catch. But once a lion catches an antelope, that animal can provide days of food for the lion. And I use it as a metaphor to, I think, explain how a lot of businesses operate. A lot of businesses go after the mice. Because the mice are seemingly a sure thing. They are plenty of them around. Uh, what's more, everybody around us, all of the other businesses, our competitors, are also going after the mice. But the antelopes are harder to catch. They are, in some sense, a, a moonshot. Um, but I think the, the businesses, as we discussed, that go after antelopes tend to, tend to perform better uh, than the businesses that go after, after the mice precisely because of, of the result in the metaphor itself. The lion ends up hungry because they end up you know, expending far too many calories trying to catch the mice. That gives so little in return. Now, when I share that metaphor with certain business leaders, some of them push back and say, well, we can't you know, bet the company on a single antelope. And I completely agree with that. I think for moonshot thinking to work, you need to have a balanced portfolio of ideas. So you don't want to bet your company's future on a single moonshot. You don't want to bet your, you know, as a lion, your entire food supply on just one antelope. The goal is to, to diversify your portfolio of ideas and the, the amazing thing about moonshot thinking is uh, even if some of those ideas fail, the ones that succeed are going to pay off in spades um, compared to the ideas that ended up failing. Because pursuing moonshots often puts you in a completely different league, playing a completely different game than your competitors. And if even one of those moonshot ideas take off, then you end up at far ahead of where you would have before. Um, and, and I'll mention this too, because this really, I think, um, it, 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 I exemplify this, this at work. Uh, even if you fail with moonshot thinking, even if you don't get your moonshot, you end up failing above your previous success and often above everyone else's success. So my moonshot growing up was to be an astronaut. I didn't get it, at least not yet. But I got to work on one of the most successful interplanetary missions of all time. And if I wasn't aiming high, if I wasn't aiming to become an astronaut one day, I never would have done the things that landed me a seat on the operations team for the Mars Exploration Rovers project. 
Ozan, I have so enjoyed this interview because I am leaving here very clear now on my moonshot. I've known what it is and I didn't term it that, but I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly passionate about my own moonshot. Your book is a masterpiece, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. I can tell you the entire division of Franklin Covey's marketing group has read your book. I have read it. Our CEO is reading it and we have sold in our own company over 50 million copies of our books. We know a few things about what it takes to make a good book, a great book. So congrats to you on your success. Your book just launched in the spring of 2020 and still continues to do very well. Tell me, um, other than of course talking about this book, what is on the horizon for you? So uh, what's on the horizon for me immediately is actually another pivot, another major pivot with my life. I decided to give up my tenure seat in academia and pivot and do solely writing and speaking. And so one of the things that I've really enjoyed doing after the book came out in April is giving virtual presentations. We're living in the time of COVID in this, in this interview, doing virtual speaking engagements and keynotes to, to various different audiences. I've really loved doing that. And I want to keep doing that. Uh, I just finished the, the proposal for my next book, which I'm going to start writing shortly. I'm really excited to be, to be doing that as well. Um, and just really leaving room aside from those two major pillars, leaving room for whatever might come my way. I think it's, um, whenever I'm in one of these moments of transformation, the, the snake comes to mind. Uh, the snake is, is the ancient symbol of transformation and the way that a skin grow that the way that a snake grows is by shedding old skin in order to allow for new skin to emerge and i think of myself the same way too i often find that i have to shed old skin that may have served me well for a while as being a, a an academic did for about 10 years but now for new skin to emerge for me to be able to uh, develop my potential in in various different areas. It's time for me to shed that old skin, to to leave room for for new insights, new breakthroughs, and new programs to emerge. Ozan Farol, we are holding a spot for you to come back on your next book. Your current book is Think Like a Rocket Scientist: Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work in Life. Thank you again, sir, for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Scott. Hey, thanks for joining us. The book is a masterpiece. Highly recommend it. Uh, learned so much. Could have talked to Ozan for multiple hours. Um, delighted you joined us. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, please visit us at franklincovey.com. Subscribe comes out every Tuesday via email and a newsletter. Includes a downloadable tool from Franklin Covey's tool chest and a blog written by me, typically about the topic of that week's interview. We'd love to have you rate us, review us, and rank us on any podcast platform that you're consuming us on. And we'll see you back here next week for a new interview on leadership. <music>